Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of What the Politics. Politics. I'm Victoria, and Emily is in the digital studio, and today we're going to continue our talk about Afghanistan. Um, but before we continue, I'm going to ask our guests to introduce themselves so we can get right into our conversation. Well, good morning, my friends and everybody out there. It's uh, Mike O'Hanlon here in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm a scholar at the Brookings Institution, an independent you know, research organization or think tank. And I'm also sort of a part-time Afghanistan specialist. I've been there more than a dozen times on research trips over the years and with election observation missions, and also have written quite a bit about it, consulted some with the U.S. military and embassy there over the years. Uh, so I guess I've been part of the problem in some people's eyes, but also been sometimes a, a, a critic, usually a supportive critic of the overall mission, but a person who's tried to suggest uh, improvements to strategy. Uh, so that's sort of who I am in a nutshell. Gotcha. So my first question for you is, you know, I think right now the biggest concern for a lot of Americans are some of the allies that we have left behind in Afghanistan right now. You know, obviously President Biden sent over that list of names and people are also concerned about that list as well. So can you talk to us about, you know, the, the current situation that people are, are concerned about? Well, Emily, as you know, it's uncertain. I think that's the fundamental point we all have to acknowledge. We are no longer in control of events in Afghanistan. And what we have to do is try to use what leverage we have with the Taliban to moderate their behavior in a certain number of areas. And certainly that begins with not supporting terrorism. That would have to be perhaps demand number one. And demand number two is some degree of amnesty or moderation and how they treat our close friends, people who have worked with us, the people you just alluded to. And then of course, demand number three is that they treat everybody in Afghanistan at least tolerably well, certainly including women, certainly including religious minorities, certainly including dissidents and reformers who might've been associated with trying to build the new Afghanistan in the previous 20 years. They may or may not have been our technical employees or allies, but they're still people we care about. You know, but I, I put all that uh, out there because how many demands can you make on a country or on a group to whom you've just lost a war? And the leverage we have is the potential to recognize them diplomatically, the potential to allow them access to Afghanistan's money overseas, which is about $7 billion in reserves, and the potential access to future assistance, you know, humanitarian aid, food aid, COVID relief, and also maybe even support for their health programs and their schools depending. Now, obviously, we're not going to be too anxious to give them a lot of money right off the bat, but we do have that potential leverage. And we also need a way to verify how any you know, money's being spent, how they're acting on the ground, whatever their promises may be, how well these people you just mentioned are being treated or allowed to leave the country if they wish. So there has to be some kind of international presence. Uh, Professor Lise Howard at Georgetown has proposed a small UN observation mission made up of Muslim-majority countries that might be deployed, not to enforce anything, but to watch and to see what's happening. So that's one more idea that's out there. But uh, bottom line is, I don't know. And 
you know, we just saw some polls come out that Americans tended to approve of President Biden's decision to withdraw. They just didn't like the way it was done. I'm a little different. I just disapprove of the decision to withdraw in the first place, because once we did that, we lost control of the ability to confidently answer questions like the one you just asked. We could have had the most exquisite, beautiful withdrawal plan in the world. The Taliban were still going to have the right to stop it at any given point because they had the guns. And sure, we could have fought our way back in. But when President Biden's already decided to withdraw, uh, that doesn't sound very credible to me. So I think we just don't know the answer to your question. And we've got to try use every bit of leverage we have to make sure that the outcome is tolerable. So now continue, continuing on, on, the, on the outcome, when it comes to the people who left Afghanistan, our allies, the refugees that are all over the world right now, um, is there a security concern or do you see any security concerns with some of the um, refugee or with some terrorist organizations disguising themselves as refugees and going to different countries and taking advantage of this situation? Yes, but I think the concern so far is, is small. It could get worse if there are big refugee flows, although apparently now Afghanistan's neighboring countries are preventing those kinds of flows. So people are sort of stuck inside until we get an answer to Emily's question about the Taliban policy be for allowing people to fly out. Uh, but that, you know, most people who are going to have the means to get on an airplane are probably not going to be ISIS terrorists, but there could be exceptions. That's, I guess, where your question is coming from. It's a very important question. And we saw certainly in 2015-16 in Europe, especially, that ISIS terrorists did infiltrate into refugee flows. And of course, there were terrible attacks in Paris, Brussels, and else Nice. Some of these attacks were people who already lived in Europe, but were inspired by ISIS. Others were people who had come through in these big streams of refugees. And so that has to be a concern here too. ISIS is not as prevalent in Afghanistan as it was in Iraq and Syria. And I think the flows of people are not going to be quite as large or sudden. So on balance, I have a little bit more confidence that we'll be able to screen effectively. But we always have to have that worry, you know, based on what you just said. You know, that worry was there even before Afghanistan fell, to be fair. Right? I mean, somebody could have been an ISIS follower, snuck into Kabul, just acted like a normal person, bought a ticket on an airplane and tried to do something terrible once they landed. That concern does not arise just because of the mess we've seen this summer. But I think it is worse because the number of people trying to get out could be much higher. And for people who, you know, know, maybe don't know the background of the Taliban, who they are, you know, what, where they're rooted at, what their belief system is, you know, could you give kind of a, a quick background for people about that? Yeah, I mean, back in the 1990s, they emerged out of a chaotic environment in Afghanistan, which was basically everybody for themselves, warlords all over the place, different militias. Uh, a lot of people read the book, The Kite Runner, which was a beautiful novel about people who had been mistreated inside of Kabul and the kids weren't even allowed to fly their kites because the Taliban saw that as somehow violating Islam. I guess it's because in the seventh century, when the Islamic faith came into being, people didn't fly kites. And anything that didn't exist back then, the Taliban doesn't want. And moreover, they have a completely unforgiving view of other religions, even other variants of Islam, such as the Shia tradition. And they certainly don't acknowledge any rights whatsoever for women, including going out of the house unaccompanied um, or showing 
even your face, leave aside, you know, some kind of a head covering. So that's the Taliban of old. And this very strict way of looking at the world is part of what gave them their cohesion. And, you know, the word Taliban comes from the word student, in, you know, in Arabic. And uh, so a Talib is a student. Actually, I don't know if that's an Arabic origin or more of a, an Afghan language like Pashto, but in any event, that's what the word means. And, and so they saw themselves as coming back to the basic teachings of Muhammad and living the way people did on the Arabian Peninsula in the seventh century AD, and maybe even a perverted, twisted version of that. I don't know what life was like in the seventh century AD in Arabia very well, but Muhammad was not known as an oppressor of women. Uh, he did use violence to consolidate uh, Muslim control of much of the territory that you know, ultimately became Saudi Arabia. But uh, he was also respected as a person who was true to the faith and the faith did preach a certain amount of kindness and discipline and fairness. Now the Taliban of the 1990s would claim that they were abiding by that, but they would use extreme measures, you know, old fashioned hardline Sharia law. So if you steal something, your hand is cut off. If you do anything that's considered you know, violating the sacred tenets of Islam, you could be stoned to death, maybe even in a stadium where people watch. If you're a woman who goes out without your head covering or without your face covering or without a male uh, accompanying you, you could be beaten. And that was the way they governed. And so they created an extremely oppressive climate. Now they say now they want to be different, but they say they want to be different and more modern within certain parameters, which they haven't yet really defined. And we also know that they've been fighting a very bloody war for the last 20 years where they had no problems killing a lot of Afghans. They did not tend to kill civilians that often. They tended to kill soldiers and police more and also assassinate public officials. And they would claim that proves that they had a disciplined military ethos and that, you know, in war, killing is part of what goes on. So that would be their justification. But I still, you know, watched 20 years of this as did you know, most others, and uh, I don't know, it looked like a pretty violent way to advance your interests when they could have formed a political party and tried to take at least local power in some places, and they chose not to do that. So most of us don't really believe what they say, but there is an intriguing possibility, given that they did help us get out. You know, they told us August 31st better be the deadline, but they didn't try to interfere with the evacuations. The terrible bombing last Thursday uh, did not originate out of Taliban edict, as best we can tell. They may have done a poor job of screening, but there are times in the past where we missed a truck bomber too. So I'm not gonna necessarily say that proves malevolent intent. So August gave a little bit of reason for hopefulness that they will be amenable to a more moderate form of rule, especially because we have leverage in the form of money. And uh, they're not gonna get that money unless they show a certain amount of moderation. And a lot of them are used to a halfway decent style of life at this point. You know, Osama bin Laden lived in a cave for a long time, and he was willing to do that. The Taliban leaders of the 1990s lived in very austere conditions. The Taliban leaders of more moderate or more modern times were often living in comfortable quarters in Pakistan or negotiating or pretending to negotiate in five-star luxury hotels in Doha, in Qatar. So they may actually want that money. <laughs> to support a lifestyle to which they've become accustomed, which may not be lavish, but is certainly a lot different than seventh century uh, kind of stuff. So we may have a chance to encourage the more moderate kind of behavior that they've been 
claiming to now believe in. So there, there's efforts to possibly recognize um, Taliban rule and everything um, that they're doing in Afghanistan to recognize them as a nation. And I know that we talked about we have leverage to kind of do that with money. What exactly would be the benefit for the United States to, to try to work with the Taliban and, and make this possible? In a way, I go back to your earlier questions because you identified, you and Emily identified all the risks already that if they go to the extreme, then they could give sanctuary to Al-Qaeda and they already have some overlapping membership with a part of Al-Qaeda called the Haqqani Network. Actually, one of their major military field commanders is named Sirah Shudin Haqqani. And so he's from that family. That family also has pledged loyalty to Al-Qaeda. So we know that. That's part of why many of us thought that President Biden was not under any obligation to leave Afghanistan this year with American troops because the Taliban itself was in violation of its promises from last year's agreement with President Trump because in that agreement, they promised not to support terrorism, and yet they still have Al-Qaeda members in their ranks, in their leadership. So we got to watch that. And that's, you know, issue number one for us, to make sure that even if they have some of this overlapping membership, that they don't actually help Al-Qaeda develop a base, plan terrorist attacks, develop sources of revenue, uh, recruit more members, etc. And then, of course, you mentioned, Victoria, that they could try to infiltrate terrorists into refugee exodus or even into you know individual people getting on airplanes and going to Europe or what have you and and then doing bad things once they're there the Taliban could do that on purpose as part of their own tactics if they wished but I think uh, those are unlikely the Taliban if anything that they may have in some sense defeated us militarily but they also know we were prepared to fight 20 years against them for our own security and if they start doing things that we find out about that would threaten our security again. I think they know that we're willing to come back in and punish them, maybe not with a big ground invasion, but certainly with a lot of air power and maybe some commando strikes. And the leadership wants to now set up in offices and have nice homes. Uh, they're tired of living uh, abroad. And so if, if they live in places that we know about and then they attack us or help others attack us, we can strike back and we can go after the leadership itself. So they know that, and I think they're less likely, therefore, to really support international terrorism. But there's still the question of how they treat their own people. And you might say, you know, like President Biden has said, we can't be responsible for how every government around the world treats its own people. Well, at one level, I agree with President Biden. At another level, I don't. Because first of all, you know, he's a Catholic. I'm a Christian. I mean, a lot of us believe we should be caring about our fellow man and woman on the planet. Uh, but also, Afghans have helped us win the Cold War against the Soviets. We gave them weapons in the 1980s. They defeated the Soviets. That helped end the Cold War. We've partnered with a lot of them for 20 years. We know a lot of them personally. And certainly, even if we're not going to stay in Afghanistan with our military any longer, we presumably have a little bit of a special interest in the well-being of the Afghan people after all that history. And that, to me, has to be a big interest as well. Maybe not as high as counterterrorism, but far from negligible. You mentioned um, Al-Qaeda, and for, I think, a lot of people, I think it's difficult to maybe differentiate between what the Taliban is, what ISIS is, what Al-Qaeda is. So could you kind of break those down for someone who, who might, unfortunately, group them all together at times? Well, first of all, it's not wrong 
to potentially group some of them together. And sometimes the US government with all this sort of sophisticated theories that I'm about to summarize here in a second to answer your question, implies or claims that there are these sharp lines. And so President Biden wants to imply that it's okay to let the Taliban come to power because they're not Al Qaeda. However, like I was saying a minute ago, there are overlapping memberships. But to get to your basic question, the Taliban is a group that's historically cared primarily or almost exclusively about Afghanistan and wanted to rule Afghanistan. There's another offshoot of the Pakistani Taliban, Pakistani students to translate you know, the term from the original. And they have a similar view of what they want to do inside of Pakistan, although they haven't been successful in taking power. Those groups are primarily focused on their own territory. And they also claim, especially now, especially the Afghan Taliban, claims not to believe in terrorism. And in fact, they claim to be granting amnesty to former government officials, soldiers, and police in Afghanistan. We'll see if that holds true as we've been discussing this morning. So that's the Taliban. Al-Qaeda, we all know, is the group that destroyed the World Trade Center towers and attacked the Pentagon uh, on 9-11 and continues to support some of the same leadership, although most of it's dead, most of it's been replaced, and the same ideology. And Al-Qaeda has an ideology of trying to essentially push the Western world out of the broader Middle East, the argument being that once it does that, it can then defeat the local governments in the Middle East and take power and create a caliphate. But its, its strategy has been, you know, starting with 9-11, it wanted to attack us and make us feel that we didn't belong in the Middle East. We were not going to be left in safety if we insisted on staying involved with our business and our diplomats and our military forces. So the whole idea of that attack was partly just pure hatred and punishment, but also it was designed to create a political effect where we would want to let the Middle East go and set up the possibility, therefore, for them to take power from governments that they were convinced only held on to power because of Western support. So that kind of basic ideology, that kind of map of how to progress towards power, that's still part of their thinking, even though it's largely different leadership. And they have affiliates in the Middle East, they have affiliates in Africa, and they still have leadership in the tribal areas of Pakistan and some of the mountainous areas of Eastern Afghanistan. And they may continue to try to spread, plus the Haqqani network, which is also along the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan, is one big piece of this that still believes in that kind of a broader vision, even if it may not be something they can achieve anytime soon. ISIS really is, it's like a sibling rivalry. ISIS grew out of Al-Qaeda back in the Iraq-Syria region about a dozen years ago. And, you know, it was, a little bit of a difference over ideology, but also just a difference over personalities and leadership. And ISIS, of course, as we all saw in the caliphate they claimed to have created in 2014-15, they were willing to use extreme violence. They didn't necessarily have a belief in, you know, big organized attacks. They wanted to inspire little attacks all over the world as much as they could. And they also, you know, didn't even claim to have a, a real purity in their Islamic faith. Al-Qaeda, going back to the original leaders, they, they did live very simply, and they had this sort of 7th century view of what Islam should be. By contrast, ISIS, 
they were more than happy to sort of live it up in their caliphate. And they would give, you know, sex slaves to, to their members. They would take the money from banks and spend it. They, uh, they were not austere or disciplined in any way in their own personal lifestyle or in the nature of the rule uh, where they conquered. And so ISIS is a little more out of control. That may seem funny to say, but Al-Qaeda historically has been a little more disciplined. But I wouldn't want to make, coming back to my first comment, I wouldn't want to make too much of a distinction, especially between Al-Qaeda and ISIS. They really both believe in violence. They both believe in using it against Western targets if they can. They both want to overthrow moderate governments in the broader Middle East region. And ultimately, they both want to create some kind of a transnational region that they call a caliphate, where Islam would be uh, the guiding you know, light. Al-Qaeda might have a little bit more of a you know, serious effort to live by Islamic precepts than ISIS, but both of them claim more or less that same long-term vision. And they're both prepared to kill a lot of people to get there. My question for you is when it comes to um, the, a lot of people would have believed that the war should have ended when we killed Osama bin Laden. And I know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you had an earlier comment where you said that um, you disagreed with withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. What, what would you consider winning the war or what would you consider what would be your reason for continuing to keep troops? And would that be a part of this war? Or is that like a separate kind of idea just to have a U.S. presence in the Middle East? Now, I don't want the presence for its own sake. I want it to deal with all the questions you've been asking me today. How do we prevent another terrorist attack? How do we make sure an ISIS or Al-Qaeda uh, terrorist doesn't infiltrate into a stream of refugees coming out of Afghanistan and attack us here? How do we protect women's rights inside of Afghanistan to the extent that that's at least a secondary priority, uh, even if it's not a top tier counterterrorism priority for our own national security? Those are the reasons why I wanted to stay. And I thought that staying with a few thousand U.S. troops and a few thousand more other NATO troops was actually enough to avoid losing the war. Now, I would acknowledge that it was not enough to clearly set out a path to win the war. We were going to need to try to help create a stalemate and play for time and wait until some kind of other development, maybe Pakistan deciding to clamp down on the Taliban and pressure them more or something else, maybe a change in leadership inside of the Taliban. Some other kind of development would have been necessary for this to come to an end, according to the path that I preferred. I wrote an article a couple of years ago for the next presidential you know, debate and administration saying to whoever won in 2020's election, that we should have a policy of staying with 5,000 troops for five more years. Basically put the policy on autopilot, if you're the president, don't think about it too much. Let your negotiator try to help the Afghan government and Taliban start talking because that peace process really had just started, you know, before we pulled out. And uh, it would have been sluggish and long because the Taliban were not in a very compromising mood and they thought time was on their side. I guess they were right. But um, I think we could have carried out that kind of a policy with well under 1% of the total strength of the U.S. military being deployed in Afghanistan and 95% uh, smaller force than we had at the peak 10 years ago when Osama bin Laden was killed. 
So with, with a, a force, about 5,000 troops, again, 95% reduced from what it had been, and less than 1% of the total US military, we could have, in my judgment, perpetuated the stalemate. Now, that may sound like a pretty you know, mundane and disappointing goal, but in the Middle East, you know, my friend and colleague, Ken Pollack, always likes to say in the Middle East, as bad as things are, they can always get worse. And I can live with having 5,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan for five or 10 more years compared to the alternatives. And now we're living in one of those alternatives, and I don't like it. I'm curious to know, you know, obviously, we've had tumultuous relationships with Afghan people in the past, but like we said, we've had this presence there for, you know, about two decades. And you said, you know, we have these relationships, we've built these relationships with the Afghan people. So I'm curious to know, you know, is there resentment there now that we've chosen to withdraw our troops? I mean, we saw those images of, of many Afghan people trying to clamber onto planes and falling off from the sky and things like that. So in my mind, I can imagine there might even be some resentment towards the American people for withdrawing our troops at the time that we did. Well, I think there is some resentment, but I would break it down. So if there's some warlord in Afghanistan who was trying to get rich because of, you know, they found some way to get a contract with NATO and they were living high on the hog and they were enriching themselves, weakening their country and frustrating us. I don't really care if they're mad at us. That group doesn't concern me and I'm sure it doesn't concern most of your listeners. But then there are the people who worked with us, either in uniform or building civil society, journalists, uh, aid workers, government officials, teachers, and they thought that even if they, or at least many of them thought, even if they weren't entitled to a permanent American form of assistance like that, there'd at least be a careful strategy for how to make a transition. And it would, to some extent, take account of conditions on the ground. And a lot of them are very disappointed, and some of them are very angry. And I've talked to some, and, and certainly um, we've read a lot of accounts of people being quoted by journalists. And... and you know, a lot of them feel like President Biden didn't just happen to decide to leave in April. He decided to leave fast. Now, that may sound silly. How can you say you're leaving fast after 20 years of being there? But the transition strategy matters a lot if what you're trying to do is prevent the takeover by the Taliban. And what we saw is that there was no such strategy. And therefore, the Taliban were able to convince Afghan soldiers and police not even to fight because the soldiers and police felt abandoned by the United States as we pulled out in a way that made it clear all we really cared about was our own skin. And so with the announcement of the decision in April to leave, within three months, we had pulled out of that big Bagram Air Base north of the capital city, and we seemed to almost do it in a hurry in a way that you know um, was almost like we were afraid of the Taliban on the way out and sent entirely the wrong message. So I think that, yes, a lot of, a lot of uh, Afghans are, at a minimum, disappointed uh, and scared and, and feeling betrayed. And some of them are very angry, yes. In the interest of time, I, I just want to wrap up our conversation. I have one more question. Emily, do you have any questions? No, you're good. Okay, so, so the last question. In, in terms of Taliban rule for um, 
for what it means for our adversaries, China and Russia. Um, what does that mean for them? Does it give them any leverage, any power over um, the United States? I'm not that worried about that consideration because, I mean, if there's, there aren't too many silver linings in this whole thing for me. But if there's one, it's that, you know, if somebody else wants to try to be influential in Afghanistan, hey, go for it. Good luck. Some people think there's a trillion dollars worth of minerals up there in the mountains of Afghanistan. Good luck getting to them safely. And if you can do it in a way that also benefits the Afghan people, because you pay royalties or whatever, you know, go for it, Russia or China. I mean, um, we tried and, and some people, I, I was in conversation sometimes with President Karzai, the first you know, post-Taliban president of Afghanistan. Uh, and then I also knew President Ghani, the, the second and last. But Karzai in particular would often claim that we Americans seem to want to stay in Afghanistan forever because he would take as proof the fact that we couldn't win this war against the Taliban. He'd, he'd say things like, come on, you, you know, uh, you, you have the greatest military on earth, the greatest alliance on earth is here as well, NATO. And you can't even defeat these guys wearing flip-flops and wearing rags up in the mountains. And there was sort of a twisted logic to his argument that was not completely ridiculous. But the part where I would try to disagree a little was to say, you know, President Karzai, we really don't want to be here. I mean, I like Afghanistan, but it's not the place where most Americans are aspiring to come for vacation. It's going to take a long time before too many people would have that view. And strategically, it's really not in a location that's all that crucial. Because even though we have competition with Russia and China, you know, the competition tends to be more with European Russia and with Pacific China. Those are the strategic zones of greatest concern where our allies are present, where most Russians and Chinese live. And we have a lot of other ways of looking, monitoring, watching, deploying forces if necessary. Afghanistan really is sort of, I mean, it's a beautiful country. It's sort of in the middle of nowhere. And the main reason why it's important is because terrorists have decided that it's not a bad place to hole up. And historically, that's been, you know, the reason why we went back, why we were concerned about it. So it, I don't think that Russia and China having more influence there is going to hurt us. I'm not even sure they want to have more influence there. They, they may open up relations with the Taliban government sooner than we do. But um, they probably won't provide enough economic aid to make up for all the Western help. So I think we'll still have the kind of leverage I was talking about with both of you earlier. And so, no, this to me, this is not a big concern in the scheme of great rivalry. I, I, I have other concerns that you've heard me talk about today, but not so much that one. So, um, you know, it's, it's great to talk with you. Excellent questions. And I, I just, you know, keep my fingers crossed. I think it's been a really bad summer for Afghanistan, but there is some hope that we can mitigate the worst case worries going forward. And that's got to be our goal now. All right, everyone, that's going to wrap up this episode of What the Politics. We release new episodes every Tuesday. You can find those at WNCT.com under the Features tab on the WNCT Podcast Network. You can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and we'll see you next week. 